Good morning, everyone, and a happy Easter to you. We're going to be in the Acts chapter 13, starting with verse 26 and going on to 39. Brethren, the sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the, measure, the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing him, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they carried out that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children. That he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Amen. Grace to you and peace, faith family. He is risen. Isn't he? It's a good day to be alive, isn't it? Of course, for us, every day is a good day to be alive, for some of you more than others, huh? I'm grateful that you are. It is this day that uh, the church calendar uh, comes before us, and in large part, I would say due to the influence of the uh, Christian worldview and the Christian faith that is currently on our cultural calendar as well, um, although in, in a diminished form, but nonetheless... It's on the church calendar and on our cultural calendar that we come to the focal reality of the historical truth of the, of the, of the concept and the, the idea surrounding the resurrection of none other than Jesus Christ. For on this day, uh, for those of you who are here with me, you probably already know this, but on this day, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus is attested to by many witnesses as having raised himself from the dead. And often what we discover in our 
discussions around this and our dialogues over this miraculous claim, we often find so many times we are asked as believers to prove or to provide proof or to provide some evidence of this grand claim, which I think that we ought to do, by the way. I think that ought to be one of the very first things that we as Christians uh, ought to want to make sure that we are aware of, that the reason that we believe in Jesus' resurrection is because of the evidence, because of the proof, because of the truth that it is and it has happened. And we are then told uh, that, that in order to Uh, come to this grand claim because if you will agree with me everybody will agree with me that that is a rather miraculous statement that somebody has been resurrected from the dead yes because I mean if you're in here right now and I could probably ask by a show of hands how many people do you know have been resurrected from the dead or let me ask you like this how many people do you know have resurrected themselves from the dead yeah, you, that, ought to be the, that ought to be the answer, by the way, right? Miracles, by definition, are miraculous. That's why, they're, that's why they're miracles, right? That's why they're supernatural. Thank you. I know. I know. Y'all slow down. I'm a little, uh, a little out there today. So what do we do in order, in order to come and provide these proofs? Well, in order to provide these proofs, what we tend to do is we start quoting from the letters that make up what we would call the canon of the scriptures, the New Testament is what we would call it, and we believe that these books makes it so unbelievably clear that Jesus rose from the dead. Eyewitnesses to the testimony of those uh, in that day that come about and they testify to that. But I don't know if you've ever been in these conversations, I've been in them I've been in them quite frequently in my life. I am then told that for some reason that the authors of the, of the Bible are biased, and then therefore you cannot, they cannot be trusted. And by the way, the same people who are demanding evidence, when you turn around the question and you go, hey, can I ask you a question? Do you have evidence that they are biased? They can't provide you evidence of their biases. It's just a presupposition. It's funny that when you want to use presuppositions, you do, but when you want others to prove it, and you can't. So it it becomes very uh, confusing, as that statement right there just proves. I don't know what I said. It's good. So we're told for some reason that we can't use the Bible. It, uh, It is always the idea that we come and we are to prove the resurrection. I wonder how many Easter morning messages this morning are going to be apologetic messages to prove the resurrection. And I have to be honest, I I don't have a problem with that. I've done that. I've come into the church and I've said, hey, I want to give you apologetic defenses of the gospel. I want to come in and provide you that. And I believe there's no better time to do it. And I support it, and I've even done it myself. And then you come into these points, and I find myself this morning, however, as I was preparing this sermon series at the end of last year and asking myself this I am probably going to stand on Easter preaching to a predominant number of people who I presume based on your attendance at a church gathering on a Sunday morning you are already convinced of this truth right most of you in this room are already convinced of that now I do want to be careful here um, and I and I and I and I don't throw shade I don't know if you know what that means in our modern vernacular 
but I'm not, um, I'm not trying to make people feel guilty. I'm not trying to throw shade at people that are here. When I was raised, I was a Christer. Y'all know what that is, right? People who go to church on Christmas and Easter, right? I was raised a Christer, and I was totally lost, totally pagan. And the only reason I would ever go to church on Christmas and Easter is because that's just what you do in the South. That's a part of my testimony. And, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to throw guilt on anyone. If this is your first time with us, I want to welcome you. I want you to, I want God, praise God that you're here. Praise God that you're with us. It, it's not meant to do that because I, my testimony is this. Throughout those Christmases and throughout those Easter's that I was able to celebrate, that there was a, a morning, a very early morning at about 2 o'clock in the morning that I came home and I bowed my knee before a thrice holy God and I gave my life to him. And the reason I gave my life to him is because somewhere, somehow on Christmases and Easter's, God got his message in my head and I was able to respond to him by grace through faith. So if you're here, I praise God that you're here. But I do, I will say that I stand preaching to a predominant number of people who I believe are probably convinced of this. I will make this remark. If you are not convinced that Jesus is raised from the dead, and you would like to spend a couple of hours with me, notice I said hours. Have you, are you the kind of person that sets a 30-minute meeting and it ends up being two hours and 30 minutes? That is me all over, y'all. So I'm going to tell you that I would love to meet you for lunch, but it's going to turn into an afternoon and probably into an evening of conversation. So if not, then I would be more than happy to take you to lunch and to have a conversation regarding evidence of the proof of Jesus' resurrection, both biblical and non-biblical, both histor- uh, all of it's historical. I would love to do it. So if you are in here and you are saying, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead unless you give me evidence, then please let us sit down and let us, let us have a lunch on me. I'll buy. But we have to go to (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Because there's a certain spiritual aspect of that whole thing. (laughs) So I would love to go to lunch with you. Um, But for those of you that are here and you're saying, wait, you know, I really don't need you to prove to me, Pastor, that, the, that Jesus has resurrected, although I, I would love to have that because it would equip me to go out to do the work. I believe most of us would be highly encouraged by a series on not proofs of the resurrection, and again, I'm not opposed to that, but I believe that begin to turn the question on its head slightly. What if we didn't look at uh, proof of the resurrection But to take a few weeks this morning and ask this question, what does the resurrection prove? So it's not as I'm going to come in and tell you, okay, this is how I prove the resurrection to you. I am going to come to you this morning and over the next five weeks, I'm going to, we are going to begin to lay the foundation of if Jesus rose from the dead, presupposition, if so facto, and he has, then what does it prove? What does it matter to you today and to us today? What is it going to matter for us? So over the next four week, five weeks, excuse me, we're going to look at the specific passages in the New Testament that directly tell us what the resurrection means for those of us who consider ourselves followers, disciples, believers of Jesus. For if he has risen, what? Does it matter? And this morning I've entitled this message, 
that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the Father's faithfulness. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the Father's faithfulness. I've broke this up into three, uh, three segments. The first I want you to look at is called the encounter. The encounter. We are rejoining Paul here, and for those of you who have been with us for any length of time, you would know that we have already journeyed through this in our study through the book of Acts over the last, well, let's just say a few months. Some of y'all want to extend that into years, and if so, that's fine, but we're, gonna, we're just going to be nice to your pastor today and just say a few months. So we're going to rejoin Paul on his first missionary journey. Where is he? He is at the place by the name of Pisidian Antioch. And as is the custom in that day, he enters the synagogue, which is what he would do. He would enter the synagogue, and their custom that as he enters is they're going to, lead, uh, they're going to read the law and the prophets. And I want to remind you that uh, Paul uh, was known as a uh, pretty influential Jew, right? He was... He was a leader in the, Jewish, in the Jewish synagogues at that time. And so when he enters the synagogue, he has, a little bit of, he has a little bit of experience under his belt. A Pharisee of the Pharisees, he described himself, having been taught and instructed in those things. So if Paul were to show up, it would be like uh, Charles Spurgeon showing up in our church, and we would probably say, hey, old Charlie, would you come and share a word with us, right? So that's what they do. He enters the synagogue, they read the Law and the Prophets, they ask of Paul for a word of exhortation. Uh, you can see this, by the way, in verses 14 and 15. It says, but going up from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. And after reading of the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, I want you to say it to us. And what Paul is going to do, and I saved us a little bit of time by not going all the way back and reading this entire passage, although it might have been helpful, and if you wanted to do that in your own time, I would highly encourage it. What you're going to see here is that what Paul begins to do, he, uh, verse 16, he says, Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during the stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. So I want you to get this because this is Paul's entire background of what he does. He, he's going to go all the way back to the Exodus, and he's going to root all that he is about to say in the entirety of the Bible, the biblical narrative. So what he's doing here, he's standing up in this synagogue and he wants to take them, these Jewish people, all the way back to the Exodus, reminding them that God has chosen them and that God has, is doing something in the midst of them throughout this story. And this is important for us because what we believe and what Paul preaches is that the story of God was written with a purpose in mind. You see, ladies and gentlemen, you want to be careful when you start taking books of the Bible out of their context because then they become pretext, and you can make a pretext anything you want it to be. And that's what we have here in the Bible. We have a story of God that was written with a purpose in mind. It's not just a collection of events, not just a collection of random books, but it's a collection of, of, of writings put together for an actual purpose, for a direct, linear purpose. And all of the books of the Old Testament were pointing us to something. And then in verse 23... This is what he says. 
he goes to us and he's going to root this all down. And then finally in verse 23, excuse me, he says, From the descendants of this man, what man? David. How do I know that? Verse 27, he talks about David. And he says, From the descendants of this man, according to the promise God has brought to Israel, a Savior, Jesus. So you've got to understand all that he's done is he's taking us through the whole Old Testament in a very brief time. And he comes into David and then when, after he comes to David and then he says this. That the descendant of this man according to the promise of God that he has brought to Israel a Savior. And then he says who is the Savior? Jesus. So what he's doing is he's trying to establish the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the Old Testament. The word that they would have used in that day would have been the Messiah. He would have been the Messiah. So this promise that he just said is a commitment to bring something to pass. From the descendants of this man according to the promise. Scholars say that there are over 300 prophetic promises of God in the Old Testament regarding God's Messiah. And virtually every time in the New Testament that you see the use of the word promise, it points back to the Old Testament. When you see this idea of God promising to His people, it's pointing and they're writing about it in the New Testament. They are referring this back to something. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is claiming that this Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised seed of Abraham through the lineage of David. And this is a bold, bold claim. This is a claim that is saying that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. Jesus is the promised Messiah through the lineage of David. So here, ladies and gentlemen, we have reason to believe that the incarnation or the coming of Christ is to fulfill the promises that were provided by God to his people. That's what I want you to see here. That's an establishment. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. All right, so you're sitting here with me and you're going, okay, pastor, we get it. The coming of Christ was the fulfillment of this promise. But, but pastor... That's not what you told me you were attempting to engage. That's the Christmas message, right? This is the Christmas truth of the incarnation. But what we're, asking, what we're asking in this series is what does the resurrection prove? Why did Jesus, why are we here on Easter? Why was it not enough for Jesus merely to be put in a tomb and to rot? Why was it not enough for him to merely die for our sins and to be left there for our sins? Why are we here on Sunday? That is a great question. Because I believe that he answers this directly in verses 32 and 33. I'm going to read it for us because I think it's so important. Verse 30 says, obviously, but God raised him from the dead. And in verse 32 it says, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. All right, did you get it? 
So ladies and gentlemen, it's not just in the incarnation of Christ that, that God the Father fulfills his promises, but it's in the very resurrection of Jesus that God fulfills his promises. Paul is preaching the good news. What is the good news? The good news, by the way, is the direct translation of the word gospel. That's what it means. The gospel of Jesus. The good news of Christ. And so here he comes and he's preaching this good news. This good news of the promise that he made to the fathers. And here is that idea of promise again. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. So it's not just that Christ rose from the dead, but ladies and gentlemen, he was appointed by God the Father and brought through it by God the Father according to the promise of God the Father. So the resurrection provides us direct proof of the Father's faithfulness. What was he faithful to? To his previous promises to all the generations that would follow that promise. Now unfortunately, some will assume that this verse signifies a necessary redemption based on descendancy. Because he says that he comes and he per this promise to our children. It's very unfortunate. And it's very dangerous, by the way, to think that you are saved because of your lineage or because of your, who, what family you're a part of. You are not saved based upon your lineage. You're not saved on your birth. You're not saved because your mom or your daddy was saved. You're not saved because your mom or your daddy was a pastor or a, a deacon or they went to church. You're not saved because you came to church. You're not saved because you're a good guy. You're not saved for any of that. You're saved by grace through faith alone, and we're going to see that in a few moments. But that's the encounter. That's where we are. So Paul is standing and is preaching, and I want you to see that the very root of Paul's preaching is saying that wait, he, Christ in his resurrection has come to fulfill the promises of God because the resurrection is essential to fulfilling these promises. And then he's going to give us the three examples. So now what Paul is going to do is he's going to, what? Prove it. Three examples going back to the Old Testament that establish Jesus is the Messiah that was promised. And this is quite fascinating for me. The first one is a direct quote from Psalms 2, 7. A passage that is used in two other places. Verse 33, he says uh, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is written also in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have what? Begotten you. Now this is interesting. Because typically, and historically, when I see this particular psalm preached on is talking about the incarnation of Jesus, the begottenness of Jesus. But I, I, am, I am wanting to posit to you that he is not talking here about the begottenness of Jesus in the incarnation. He is talking about the begottenness of Jesus in the resurrection. I want you to listen and I want you to watch this because there's only two other times that he uses this in the New Testament. This verse that, that the writer, I'm sorry, the New Testament uses this verse in, the, uh, in order to reference who Jesus is. And both of them, ironically, are in Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Now, I think this makes sense. Because what is Hebrews talking about? Hebrews is a book that is written to a Jewish audience. 
i.e. Hebrews. So the first one that we find is in Hebrews 1.5, and I want you to see here, what is he doing? He's validating Jesus as better than any of the angels because none of the angels were ever referred in a way of, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Watch this, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Let's go to verse 3 because I think this ties to, my, uh, to what I'm trying to get at. It says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purifications of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is that? Resurrection. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to whom of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. There's one. Let's turn to the second one. Second passage is going to be in Hebrews 5.5. 5. Hebrews 5.5. 5. Starting in verse 1. It says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so, offer, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God even as Aaron was. So here it is. So also, Christ, what? Did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but it was said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what is the reference of this begotten in Hebrews? It seems to be to be directly connected with him being placed in the majesty on high and to be connected with his glorification. Does everybody see that? So I say that to you, that each time that this passage is talking in the New Testament, it is referencing the resurrection of Jesus. So if we go back now to what he is saying, in verse 33, he says, God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised Jesus up from the dead. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today... I have begotten you. What day is he referencing? I think the day he referenced to me here seems to be more in reference not to the incarnation, but to the resurrection. You see, Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, is the Son of God from all eternity. And because he was the Son of God from all eternity, he was, in Christmas, begotten in his incarnation, right? brought forth, if you will, in his incarnation. But here we learn he was not only begotten as the Son of God in the incarnation, he was begotten as the Son of God in the resurrection. He was brought forth in the resurrection. You see, it was in and through his resurrection that we are witnesses to what? His exaltation. And I believe the second psalm endorses the fulfillment of this promise that Jesus was going to rise again. 
And here, then the second time, he says this. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So what is he speaking of? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I skipped one, 34. I got ahead of myself, y'all are so, I'm so excited. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer returned to decay, he has also spoken in this way, I will not give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Right? So I want you to notice here, this is the second psalm that he has is a direct relationship to Isaiah 55.3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And by the way, what's he talking about? The resurrection, right? The holy and sure blessings of David. What does holy mean? Set apart. What are blessings? The, the goodness, the, the praises, the, the, the promises. So he's going to give the, the holy and sure blessings of David. And what are those? These are God's promises to David that he was going to establish in David's descendancy an eternal throne. A kingdom that would last forever. A promise to David, but not fulfilled by David. So, the question would be, how is the resurrection of Jesus the fulfillment of this promise? Because only a living king can rule eternally. Right? Only a living king can rule eternally. Only a living king would be able to fulfill the promises that were provided to David. A dead Messiah can fulfill nothing and neither can any of your dead gods. Neither can any of the gods that are dead that we currently try to serve. You see, there is no Messiah outside of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You want to have proof that Muhammad is not the Messiah? He is dead. You want me to have proof that Buddha cannot save you? He is... Thank you. You want me to give you proof that you are not going to be able to save yourself? Because one day you will die. I come to you, and I come to you with seriousness in my, in my language. I want you to hear this. A dead Messiah can fulfill nothing. But through Isaiah, God said, listen to what he said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of God. I want you to notice those words as it is spelled out that Isaiah says. I will give you those four beautiful words, the holy and sure blessings of David. Those four words, I, God the creator of the universe, will through his sovereign plan and through his sovereign design give, it's all a matter of divine grace and mercy, you, my chosen people, through my chosen Messiah. Those whom the God the Father calls, God the Son redeems, and God the Spirit dwells. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, speaking of the Messiah. The eternal rule of Jesus is only possible through a risen Savior. And then thirdly, his third, psalm, uh, third proof, 
he goes back to the Psalms and he says, Paul says, using Psalm 16.10, Therefore he also says in another Psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This was used once before. For those of you who were with me, you may remember this. We were in Acts. Day of Pentecost has just occurred. We're in chapter 2. Let's look at verse 22. Peter is preaching. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Oh, verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I am the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover my flesh will also live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Ladies and gentlemen, the entire point here is worked out for us in the following verses. It's as though the crowd around David, around Paul, excuse me, would have assumed it was fulfilled in David. But Paul says no. Verse 36, going back to Acts chapter 13, he says, For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. It's almost like Paul is saying, I know what you're going to say, but that was talking about David. Paul's going, I ain't talking about David. David's decaying. He's rotting away in a tomb somewhere. I want you to know that this is not that. That although David wrote the passage in Psalm 16, he wasn't writing about himself because he did die. He did see corruption or decay. But the man Jesus never did see decay because God raised him from the dead. And here Paul is bringing the argument that in the resurrection of Jesus, God himself fulfilled the promises that he made to David. God the Father was faithful to his promises. God the Father was faithful to his promises to all in the Old Testament. God, was, God the Father was faithful in his promises to David. And God is, the Father will be faithful in his promise to us. How do I know that the Father is faithful? Because Jesus is risen. So what does it mean? And I think that's where the next two verses come in. So we have, the, we have here, we've seen the encounter. We've seen the three examples. Now let us turn to the exhortation. Read along with me, verses 38 and 39. Therefore... Because Jesus has risen from the dead, because he has fulfilled all the promises, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, because of these things regarding the resurrection, let it be known to you by the way the same brethren he was just assuring that the promises to their children had been fulfilled, that through him this is Jesus' forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you see it? It's not just because you're children. It's so that your children would hear the gospel message so that through the gospel message they would what? 
They would have their forgiveness of sins proclaimed to them. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, and through him, Jesus, watch what it says, everyone who what? Believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. There's our answer. How, how am I saved? How do I get forgiveness of sins? To believe in the one who was resurrected from the dead. That's how you do it. Not because you were born into some family. And I want to give all of you hope. If it was because you were born into family, I, have the most, I, have, I among the most of us are to be pitied. I have no reason to stand before you. Oh, but I was pulled from that. I was adopted by God's grace, saved by His amazing mercy, forgiven, not because of my lineage, but because of the testimony of Christ that would come to the generations after us, to our children's and our children's children. So what is this basis for our freedom? You need to ask that question because everyone in here needs to understand what is the basis for those who would be freed. The basis of our freedom is faith. And as we go about our discourse with those in the gospel, it is a ludicrous idea that the resurrection of Jesus is symbolic. It is a ludicrous idea. Do you know we have, and I'm going to use this word very, very liberally, quote-unquote churches, that are literally probably preaching this Sunday of the symbolism of the cross. Of the symbolism of the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, he didn't really raise from the dead. Let me tell you what it symbolically means. I can tell you what you can do with your symbolism. That's not it. Y'all are nasty, dirty. That's, you see, that's why we repent. That's not what I, what you can do with your symbolism is you can actually read the Bible and make it real. That's what you can do with your symbolism. He is not talking symbolically here. These men who, who would become disciples of Jesus, who would be willing to die, do you think they're dying for a symbolic idea? Oh, I think Jesus, Jesus is the idea of Jesus' resurrection means that we can all have this new life and have new opportunity. All right, you willing to die for it? You're willing to die for that's a symbol? No, what they were dying for is this. Jesus rose from the dead. Literally, physically. Without the resurrection, ladies and gentlemen, God would not have answered the promises given to David. There is no doubt for us. Jesus came into the world and in his incarnation with the evidence of being the Son of God. Yes? Yes. John writes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But this glory was not merely seen in his incarnation and in his miracles but it was seen through the fulfillment of the prophetic promises of His eternal life, demonstrated and declared, and the Amen of the Amen when He rose from the dead. And here lies two great truths for you and me. First, the resurrection of Jesus comes with eternal significance. 
The resurrection of Jesus has an eternal significance. Because for you and me, for us, I want you to know, we are told that God has appointed a day in which man will stand before Him and be held accountable. You see, the, the, the idea is that the Father has also appointed a day, not only the day that Jesus would die, the, the day that Jesus would be born, what He would do in His life, that He would die on a cross, but yes, He would be raised again, but He also promised a day in which all of us will stand face to face before Him and give an account. So let me ask this. If He was faithful to every promise He's had up until this point, you think he's going to be faithful to that promise? I would say if he fulfilled his promises of the past, we can trust that he will fulfill his promises of the future. And each of us will do the most terrible thing we have ever done in our entire existence. Every single one of us, and it is terrible. And by terrible, I mean frightful it is frightening are you listening you will fall into the hands of the living god and by those hands you will experience either his wrath due to your sin and your rejection of him or you will experience amazing grace due to your salvation from him It is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of God. It's either you're going to stand before Him or when you fall into His hands, the only thing you got, which is the only thing you need, is faith and belief in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of His Son. Each of us will fall. Each of us will be judged. And through this salvation that those of us who are proclaiming, that the truth that let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You see, the good news, the good news, the gospel news is that yes, you will fall into His hands, but the good news is that your, your sins have been forgiven through His Son, Jesus, if you would but trust in Him. And through this salvation, we have a promise. We have a promise of what? Eternal life with Him forever. How do we know this? Because Scripture says that there will come a day in which we too will have a resurrected body. We too have the promises of great reward that is far more significant than any of our light momentary afflictions, the Bible says. No wonder Paul would write in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, that when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. You see, it is the promise that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
It's the promises throughout the scriptures. It's the promise of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the, together with them in the clouds to meet him, the Lord, in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. And then what does he say? Comfort one another with these words. How, beloved, does this provide us comfort if God is not faithful to his promises? How do I stand up and preach every Sunday morning the resurrection of Christ if he hasn't resurrected? What are churches doing on Sunday that stand up and say that the resurrection of Jesus is symbolic? Blabbering. That's what they're, they're just blabbering, blah, blah, blah. It means nothing. But if Jesus has risen from the dead, you and I have hope. And we have true comfort. I can hear, I can hear it. You know, I've, I've been around this for a minute. Okay, 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 pastor, I get it, I get it. There's something out there. There's something out there. I get it. There's a day in which I'm going to go to heaven. I'm, I'm Okay, eternal life. I get it. There's something way out there. But you know what? I'm living right now. Don't hold your breath. Before I get to this next part, don't hold your breath. You read your newspapers lately? I've read the newspaper. I don't know if y'all see how many people die a day without the expectation of death that day. I'm looking on the faces of people who go into the hospital for a random checkup and come out with diagnosis of cancer. I have people right before me in this very room who have already been given a diagnosis of how long they're going to live based upon the disease they have. I've done, done a funeral for an eight-month-old baby, a nine-year-old boy, a 90-year-old man, and everything in between. Dear sir, dear ma'am, I would tell you, you don't know when your final breath is going to be. So before you flippantly cast off this idea of eternal life, I just want you to realize this. It happens in a moment. And the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in the very next moment you're right before God in those hands but what if he tarries what if he allows you to tarry you know what I mean by that what if he what if that moment isn't this moment? What if you got about a couple thousand more of those left? 
How does, how does the resurrection of Jesus impact the way I live, my, the everyday stuff of life? Brothers and sisters, we live in a perpetual Easter perspective. I want you to think about that. A perpetual Easter perspective. You see, ladies and gentlemen, knowing the truth, that God is faithful to His promises, we can be assured that no matter what we face in today's world, no matter what we face tomorrow, including death itself, that whatever God calls for us to do has significance. One author, I'm going to totally paraphrase this, but one author wrote one time, he goes, what if, you see, we get all in the scientific, right? Why are daisies all the same? Well, it's because of genetics. It's because of this. It's because of that. And the author posits something that I found very fascinating. And of course, this is only going to be fascinating to those who are faith, who have the faith. But for those who are, I want it to be fascinating to you. What if he says, what if God, what if daisies aren't made alike merely because of the scientific realities of what God has placed in creation? But what if God made every daisy alike because he loves making daisies? Oh, I love that. Let's do it again. Ooh, wasn't that beautiful? Let's do it again. Ooh, I love that sunrise. Let's do it again. I love that. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. What if every breath you take is the God of heaven looking down on your life and saying, Donnie, I just want to see you do it again. And do it again. And do it again. Donnie, you really messed that one up, son. I'm going to wake you up in the morning and let you do it again. Church, I want you to know it's not all about this eternal life that awaits us. It's not all about the perspective of our one day fulfillment when salvation's curse is gone. It's not all about the day when we get to heaven. It's not all about this idea of our future reality. It's very real now. Paul would write to the Colossians again. He said this, listen, he said, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Listen to what he says next. Did y'all ever catch what he says next? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Why do I do what I do now? Because I know I'm going to receive the reward of my inheritance then. You see, Jesus' resurrection proves that the Father is faithful. 
Jesus' resurrection proves that the Father is faithful to fulfill His promises. And if Jesus has risen from the dead and the Father is faithful to His promises, then we who place our faith and our trust and belief in Him, we acknowledge and we know that He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. It drives us. It it motivates us to the importance that we have a message that our God has demonstrated. He is faithful. Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians, even, even when you are faithless, even when you are faithless, He is still faithful. Isn't that good? Oh my gosh! That because of His resurrection, we can experience real, tangible, living freedom from all things which the law can no longer give us or provide for us and the law will never free us from. All of your legality, all of your rules, all of your ipso facto, gotta do this, gotta do that. You tell us what gives us freedom and isn't the law. The law brings about condemnation. It's Jesus who gives us freedom. Aren't you glad, man? Aren't you glad to know that He has risen from the dead and He has defeated death, hell, and the grave? Amen? It's not some theoretical, theological, trivial pursuit game where you can get all your pies and make it to heaven. The resurrection is life-giving. It brings meaning. It brings with it a call to be men and women who persevere. Why can we persevere? Why do you persevere through cancer? Why do you persevere through poverty? Why do you persevere through persecution? Why do you persevere through pain? Because we have been given promises. Because we know this ain't it, yo. I've been on the side asking God, God, are you going to fulfill your promises to us? I was talking to a group of students one time and they were asking me, Pastor, I struggle because I have doubt and nobody else doubts like I have doubt. I looked at them and I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you start talking about everybody else, I know you're 14 and know everything, but before you start talking about everybody else, you might want to ask the question, Pastor, have you ever doubted? You ever sat in your room? Come on. You ever sit in your room, maybe at the breakfast table, you're sitting there reading your Bible, you read about Jesus raising from the dead, and then that little bitty thought comes into your mind. Is that real? Is all this real, or are we just playing a game? Are we just shifting shifting rocks around just to make ourselves happy? Is it true that this is nothing mere than a crutch because you are a bunch of weak people? Is it true that we want to have hope and that's the reason we go looking for hope? You think you've asked some hard questions? It's 
Is it true, God, that you're going to be faithful? God, are you going to really be there in the end? God, do you not see what's happening in this world? God, do you not hear me crying out to you in pain? God, is it all worth it? Is it all worth it? Or, is it, or am I just going to end this thing and just go back to dust? Is the atheist right? Is the atheist right that this is it? That we just live and we die and then we're no more? Is that, is that what we are? If so, then ladies and gentlemen, your, your, your entire life must adjust accordingly. I don't know why you're trying to love people. I don't know, I, if you're an atheist, I don't know why love wins. Who told you that? Nature is red in tooth and claw. Is the agnostic right? No. I know the agnostic is right, not right because the agnostic ain't never answered anything. They just say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I can't depend on them. Is the Buddhist right? Is the Buddhist right? I mean, I'm, I'm being serious. Is the Buddhist right? Do we, are, do we be, do we, are we reincarnated into something like a cow and just let somebody pull on our udders forever? Or maybe a rat. Maybe we become this rat. Y'all, I'm checking out right there. I don't know, but I'm checking out. I don't like rats. Rats scare the dickens out of me. And if, that, that, and if that's what I'm going to turn into, I don't know about this, yo. I've been there. I've, I've been at the depth of my soul looking, hey, is all this right? God, are you going to be faithful when all is said and done? When I close my eyes for that final night, are you going to be faithful? If today be my last day, and I want today to be my best day, God, will you fulfill your promises to us? And how do I know? And I will tell you, after all my wrestling, after all my disputes, after all my doubts, and I've had them, I've been there, I've been through it, after all of that is said and done, my answer always goes back to this truth that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has proven to me and to us that the resurrection fulfilled the promises of the past and I ought to never again question whether he is capable of fulfilling the promises in the present or the future because I know he can and I know he will. And therefore, since I have been crucified with Christ, I am no longer to live. I am no longer a slave to sin. I have been set free to live a new life to the glory of God the Father. You see, I want you to leave here knowing that the resurrection of Jesus proves that the Father is faithful to his own. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a great Easter story. Will you please stand to your feet as we prepare our hearts now for the, re for the preaching of God's word. I know there are faces in here that 
I haven't seen, and I want to welcome you to be a part of our faith family and to come and enjoy with us the worship of Jesus. We, we do, it's not a metaphor here, we do celebrate the resurrection of Christ every Sunday morning. We would invite you to come and to be a part of that. I do want to point to you what we are about to do. We believe that the, the entire narrative of the worship of God's people is God's people responding to God's word. It's always God revealing to us what he would want us to do and then us in response to that because he is God and we are not. So what we're going to do now as a community of faith is respond to his word. Let me explain to you what that means. For those of you who are not believers, how do you respond? Well, it's by faith. You come to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, believing in him by faith. You've probably heard it said in, in this way, be saved but what are you being saved from? You're being saved from your sins. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of, of, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the message has been preached. God has been faithful. How do I know he's been faithful? Because he, ro raised, he rose his son from the dead. Jesus is risen. And because he is risen, I know he has fulfilled the promises that he made to all the New Te Old Testament. And now there are new promises made to the New Testament or repeated or revealed promises made to the New Testament church. And I know that if that is true, he's going to fulfill those promises as well. So here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're not a believer in here this morning, and the God of heaven is convicting you of your sin, that you would want to come to believe in him and trust in him by faith, I would pray that right where you are, you come and you cry out to him and you accept him as your Lord and Savior. And what is the identifying characteristic of that? Because those who are saved would be saved by faith in Jesus, and those who have faith in Jesus would follow through in faithfulness by being obedient to that Jesus through baptism. So I would call you to baptism. I would call you, uh, here we baptize, <clears throat> biblically, scripturally. Baptizo literally means to be dunked. We dunk you beneath the water and we bring you back up. To identify, by the way, with the death and burial of Jesus. Oh, but to identify with his resurrection as well as you come out, out of that water a new, a new person. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Bapti baptism is a symbolic idea of what Christ has already done for you. So I want to invite you to come and be baptized. But if you are a believer with us and you are here and you are worshiping with us and you are a believer, if you're not a believer and you want to remain as such, then I want to tell you that what you have basically done and we give you the freedom to do that, you've pushed away from the table and we would ask for you not to participate in the next part. Why? Because we call it the Lord's Supper. And if you don't trust him as your Lord and you want to push away from the supper, it's like being at the house. You don't have to eat. I just want to remind you, this is the only supper you're going to get. So we come and we participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're a member of another church, as long as you're not under the church discipline, we invite you to come and be a part of our Lord's Supper today, this morning. If you're a believer in Christ and you're a part of an, another congregation, we would invite you to come and be a part of the Lord's Supper with us. The way this happens is we exit out we come through. By the way, if you're not a believer and you're going to push away, you can come out and you can watch what we do. We just ask you not participate in the elements. Please. 
So you come out, you come through, you're going to get your elements, come back to your seat, and then we will all participate together <coughs> as a family. Before we do that, we come before our God and King, knowing that I've been convicted of God's, gra- of, of God's uh, amazing grace. I know I've been convicted of things that I have not believed in this past week or days. So because of that, I come and I ask God to forgive us of our sins. So what we're going to do in the next few moments as believers, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to go before our great God and King so that we don't come to this table in an unworthy manner. I do want to encourage you in here, church, for those of you who are covenant members of our faith family, the Bible is clear, Paul is clear, that if you have any ought against your neighbor, if there's any person in here that you need to seek forgiveness from, that you would step out of your chairs, do that now before you participate in the supper. And then come participate in the supper. Yeah? So let us go before our great God and King together. Let us pray.